This is Rosemary Coates. I'm the executive director of the Reshoring Institute, and this is Rethinking Reshoring episode. Today, I'm very excited to uh, introduce my guest, Todd Steffen, who's the executive VP of North America for Colliers. Good, uh, good afternoon or good morning, Todd. How are you? Rosemary, I'm doing well today. Thank you very much for having me uh, on the discussion and I uh, look forward to talking with you. Yeah, so people might not be uh, uh, familiar with Collier's, but uh, just a, a little piece from from my perspective, uh, as we're working with companies that are reshoring or expanding their manufacturing in the U.S., they're looking for a place to do that for property and Collier's uh, can help in that regard. So can you give us a little overview of Collier's and the work that you do? Sure, Rosemary. Thank you. Uh, Collier's is one of the top three largest uh, commercial real estate companies globally. Uh, we specialize in industrial real estate, which ties very well into our discussion today. Um, we offer a suite of integrated services uh, that are uh, related to industrial real estate, including site selection, uh, warehouse and, and manufacturing capacity planning, uh, workforce analytics, uh, tenant representation, of course, to get transactions completed, uh, transportation analysis, financial analysis as well, and then take it all the way through construction, engineering, and design uh, of the of the actual capacity solution. Um, in addition, some of our clients also want to buy or sell uh, their their industrial assets. So we have a full team of capital markets experts that uh, do property valuations, site valuations, as well as buying and selling of uh, assets or portfolios of assets. Okay. So if I have a client that wants to set up a new manufacturing facility, say uh, 100,000 square feet, and they don't know where to go. So they're bringing back some manufacturing and maybe expanding a new product line production in the U.S. Um, and they they maybe live in a metro area, but not sure they want to manufacture there. They're looking for a lower cost profile uh, where there's plenty of labor available. And they come to you. How does the process start? What do they do? Yeah, great, great question. So our comprehensive site selection process, we call it, is essentially a five-stage process. Um, we start with strategic planning and criteria development. So we gather all the requirements for that either manufacturing or warehousing capacity that's going to be needed. Um, I then tap into a team of 90 of the top industrial advisors across North America that cover the top 50 markets. And it's called our Logistics and Transportation Group. Essentially, um, they're the they're the top industrial producers out of our uh, a group of seven hundred industrial brokers. And the nice thing about working with each of these uh, you know members of the logistics and transportation team are that they live and breathe their markets every day. So they know not only the the offerings uh, from a property and a site standpoint that are on market, but also those that are off market or where land uh, may be available for development. So. We do a full-on community and site search, uh, leveraging that team of, of 90 uh, industrial professionals across North America 
And then we uh, work into a site selection and cost pro forma. So we basically work up a financial projection of each of the different capacity options for our clients. And then we go to work on securing the preferred site. So uh, negotiate the deal, make sure that we uh, go after all necessary um, or available incentives, uh, tax incentives, as well as other incentives from different municipalities and, and states. Uh, and then, like I said before, we will, uh, if, if needed and, and if the client would like us to, we get involved in oversight of the construction, engineering, and design of the solution. So it really is an end-to-end uh, site selection process. And we take into critical factors, as you mentioned, uh, labor, uh, transportation, uh, costs, uh, utilities, uh, zoning, site-specific requirements like clear height, parking requirements, uh, any cold stores is necessary or, or conditioning in the space. Ah, very good. So, and I assume you do uh, logistic sites as well, like the warehousing and docks, loading docks, uh, that sort of thing as part of the 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 uh, profile of the building. Yeah, yeah. I'm a, I'm a little um, I'm a little bit of a different type of industrial broker, if you will, or, or resource because prior to joining Colliers, I worked for 25 years in both management consulting, but, but also spent 20 years in, um, in, uh, various supply chain leadership roles in industry. So I spent about 15 years with Walgreens and, uh, a couple of years with, uh, dual brands and in roles at Walgreens, I helped them develop out, out their, uh, full distribution network. So, uh, site selection, you know, greenfield design, all the automation technology and that kind of thing. So, I have a lot of experience uh, doing the logistics sites in the warehouses and really designing what those should look like. Um, and then in my later years at Walgreens and at Dual Brands, I played a supply chain transformation leadership role that really took a look at the network from a strategic capacity standpoint and decided um, you know, where exactly the future capacity should be with regards to different distribution and logistics networks. Uh, so important to work a prof- with a professional like you. Uh, years ago, uh, when I worked for a defense contractor in San Diego, uh, they built uh, a new building and everyone was so excited about the new building and we moved in uh, and there were labs inside the building where we were making computer, big computer equipment, uh, you know, the large profile computers. And uh, the first time we tried to ship them out, uh, I walked outside and noticed that the dock didn't have enough turnaround space for a driver to back in. And uh, so, <laughs> I don't know, it was, it, it was incredible. It was like the architects had never seen a truck before, you know? So yeah, in, order wh- to get, <laughs> in order to get into the dock, the driver had to jackknife the truck and maneuver back and forth to try to get anywhere even close to the dock. I mean, it was just a mess and a, and a disaster, you know? I mean, when you have yeah. architects and people driving a, a program like that that have no experience in supply chain or logistics or, the re- what, you know, what a truck looks like or how a truck <laughs> uh, moves and maneuvers um, can be a real problem. Yeah. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, uh, the, the way we look at it is, you know, we look at it as though we're going to occupy the space ourselves, and we walk through every detail from a, a requirement standpoint, really from an operator's lens. And that's why I like the the supply chain background that I have in my in my uh, pre- past experience, because you know I've I've dealt with 
the layout and design of so many distribution centers across North America, it really plays well into now being able to advise uh, my clients, you know, with regards to their requirements and just making sure they've thought through everything. Yeah. And, you know, it's not just the the requirements they have, but also how efficiently they can um, they can manage the business because of it. I mean, if you have to spend an extra two hours getting your truck to the dock, and that can be a real problem for him for a fast moving supply chain, right? And yeah, it's yeah. funny now. It wasn't very funny back then, I got to tell you. Now, I've also no, had yeah. a, a client in the past that was doing a site selection and they looked at all the criteria you were talking about and, um, uh, you know, what's the best location, the best uh, tax profile, uh, you know, what's the labor cost, all these things. Um, and it came down to a couple of decision points. Uh, one was where do the executives want to live? <laughs> so it wasn't just, <laughs> you know, just uh, you know, where's the best selection, but the executives had a say. Um, they didn't necessarily want to live in some of the places that we recommended. So, you know, that was a consideration. And then, you know, the other um, big consideration is they wanted to be near a university that was working on their technology so that they could have easy access to the labs and the development of that technology. So that was, you know, out of the blue, right, and didn't have really anything to do with the actual physical location, uh, but a very important criteria overall for uh, for the selection process. So I guess, you know, the point is it can be very specific to the situation or to the company. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, you know, it, it's interesting. I I sit on three supply chain executive committees that cover about 300 of the largest company supply chains across North America. They include University of Tennessee, uh, Global Supply Chain Institute, and then RELA, which is all the retail um, you know, retail companies, and then a, a group called Supply Chain Leaders in Action, which is a, a mix of manufacturers, shippers, and logistics companies. And uh, it's it's amazing when you hear the stories, some of the site selection, call it horror stories, of how decisions actually got made across such a broad uh, range of companies. And and the examples you gave, really, they're, they're not that uncommon, believe it or not, <laughs> where executives, yeah. you know, want to have a nice commute, short commute to the facility. And it's like, well, wait a minute, that's got nothing to do with the, the function that that, uh, you know, facility is going to play. Yeah, for sure. For sure. There's all kinds of overlay uh, uh, requirements and variables and so forth. So are you seeing any kind of resurgence in, in manufacturers looking for factory locations or are any of these companies reshoring or, you know, what's the environment like these days? Yeah, great question. So we're seeing, um, you know, it's interesting, just the industrial market overall, you know, 2021 was essentially like the peak uh, since 2010. It's been growing uh, like crazy. And, and right now we're still only at a, like a four and a half to five percent vacancy rate in most industrial capacity across North America. So it's it's uh, incredibly tight. Uh, I would say 2023 is starting to come back down to what we saw like a pre-COVID normal level of, of growth and, and capacity and absorption. But with regards to reshoring, I'm seeing uh, a ton of activity. Um, I, I've been keeping an eye on this quite a bit and, and uh, tracking companies that have a few clients that are interested in reshoring as well. And what I'm seeing is companies are going after you know lower transportation costs, more reliable inventory levels, uh, better access to qualified labor. And again, if you compare our labor profile in the U.S. 
for as many issues as we think we have compared to other global players, we're in a good spot uh, as far as that goes from a you know an outlook standpoint. And then you know folks are looking for lower inventory levels and faster innovation and production turnaround time. So those are those are some of the reasons companies are looking at at reshoring. I would say if you look at the U.S. Uh, specifically, you know Biden's made this a, a big uh, priority of of his administration and. I think I, I was reading an article the other day that said there's about 650,000 new manufacturing jobs since 2021 that have been created, you know, from things like yep. the Chips and Science Act and 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 policy changes and that kind of thing, where companies have pledged $50 billion incremental investment in 2022 for semiconductor and, and chip manufacturing, training, development, that kind of thing. And that includes like $40 billion in uh, manufacturing incentives. So, so there's a lot of focus on that. Um, you know, particular sectors, specifically Micron has pledged $40 billion of production capacity in the U S moving from 2% of their overall capacity to 10% of the chips being manufactured in the, in the U S. So, um, you know, a lot of, a lot on high tech and then also, um, appliances, uh, GE has created essentially an appliance campus across the Southeast, um, you know, in uh, Georgia, Tennessee, South Carolina, and Alabama, and they're cranking out 2,400 appliances every hour. Um, so, so definitely huge investments there in manufacturing. And then, of course, Tesla with the Gigafactory in Reno, and then Amphor has moved uh, a lot of their wire harness production from China and Mexico up to Portland, Oregon. Believe so, yeah, wow, it's uh, it's kind of amazing. Uh, and Bloomberg published a statistic a couple weeks ago saying that 80% of the earnings calls, uh, on 80% of the earnings calls, whether it's an annual earnings call or quarterly, uh, on 80% of those conversations, reshoring was mentioned at least once. And so we know it's on executive agendas. And in, and one of the reasons why is because it's very closely associated with um, with um sustainability and ESG initiatives. So the companies are looking at or are being asked to produce sustainability uh, profiles and what are they doing? And of course, if you manufacture in the U.S. and your market is in the U.S., you're shortening your, your global supply chain, as you mentioned, and that means reducing your overall carbon footprint. So reassuring and sustainability go hand in hand uh, to achieve those kind of goals. And I think that's really important. Um, and I think you're right about the, uh, about the government um, emphasizing manufacturing now and supplying funds to get some of these companies started. Um, you mentioned Micron, of course, their Intel is building in Arizona, although this week with the heat wave, I'm not sure how much they're building. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I just saw the news last night that uh, it's supposed to be 116 today in, in Phoenix. I grew up in Phoenix, Crazy. so I know how miserable that is. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so uh, yes, Arizona, um, New Mexico, Texas, Ohio, New York, all these places are building chips factories. Um, and I think that's, uh, you know, specifically industry by industry, we're seeing definitely uh, some high tech coming back. But overall, you know, we're seeing it across the board in all kinds of industries. So not just high tech, but all sorts of industries are either 
bringing manufacturing back. They're re-engineering their manufacturing lines uh, to take advantage of automation. Uh, and they're expanding locally. And then the final piece is foreign direct investment. So we have foreign companies that are coming in and, and either establishing a new production plant, maybe a, a Swiss company or a German company, uh, you know, going to set up an auto plant somewhere. Uh, so we're seeing a lot of that kind of activity as well. So, you know, hopefully yeah. it's going to be both of us, right? Well, and then you take a look, Rosemary, at, at the whole EV production environment, right? And how the, you know, Detroit used to be the, the, the epicenter of automobile production. And, and now all the electric vehicles are being produced in the Southeast, you know, from, from every car manufacturer. And of course, then the ecosystem of EV batteries and charging stations that are being manufactured here. You know, it's it's really uh, created quite an incredible uh, growth engine for the for the southeast, and we're really, if you take a step back and look at it, this was a long time coming, right? I mean, you know, all the political mismanagement in in uh, different countries in Asia have really you know come home to roost, and and the U.S. as I mentioned before, the demographic profile uh, for for future labor force availability in the U.S. is is phenomenal only to be really outdone by Mexico, who's a great trading partner of ours now. And you look at the, the development of the advancement in uh, you know, energy production in, the, in North America, we've really become uh, much more independent, uh, having the lowest co- you know, cost uh, source of energy and, and just the shale revolution uh, putting us in that position. And, and the, the uh, open trade with, with Mexico and you know, taking a look at the the growth down on Laredo, it's amazing, right? I mean, you can have a production plant now down in Monterey, like Lego and Mattel and Tesla are expanding all their footprints down in Monterey and and getting, you know, freight delivered anywhere uh, across the border here, usually within about 24 hours versus two to six weeks, you know, coming across the ocean and dealing with all the disruption that we learned about uh, from COVID. Uh, and, and, when you look at the volumes, uh, just going through Laredo, I mean, it's amazing. It's about 40% of the Mexico U S volume. So it's, it's not just on the U S side of the border. It's, it's really, uh, you know, on both sides of the border, uh, that, that I see this, this manufacturing resurgence happening. Okay. Yeah. So we've, we've been doing, uh, quite a bit of work at the Reshoring Institute on cross-border commerce and uh, looking at all the, uh, commercial crossing points along the border, uh, recently, in fact, uh, in a previous episode, I interviewed uh, an economic development guy from Brownsville, Texas, um, and okay. the border crossed that area. And of course, they're close to an ocean port as well. So there's a, a, a lot of crossing information there. Um, and, you know, as far as the labor rates are concerned, we also did a, a major global labor rate study uh, that we published just before Christmas last year, uh, comparing mm-hmm. labor rates in 12 countries uh, around the world in 10 job categories. And what we found was that China is no longer the low-cost country. It's kind of smack in the middle. Uh, And on the low end is uh, Vietnam, India, and central Mexico. So not so much along the border, but central Mexico. So the labor rates are really cheap in Mexico, which, you know, if you have a supply chain that includes uh, a lot of labor content in your product, then you need to look for a low-cost labor environment like Central Mexico, and it makes it a, a really nice, um, a really nice trading lane kind of uh, approach 
with USMCA and being able to move those products that are actually uh, the uh, growth or, or product and produce of uh, Mexico into the U.S. duty free. So you can't you yeah, can't absolutely. just bring our, you can't just bring a kit from China uh, into Mexico and assemble it and call it Mexico made in Mexico. It actually has to be the labor and the uh, parts and components that come from Mexico uh, in order to qualify for duty free entry into the U.S. So that that's another complicated absolutely. issue. You guys, you guys also you're worldwide. You deal with um, properties in Mexico as well, right? Absolutely, yeah. Our, our North American team for industrial is is really unmatched. We have a phenomenal team in uh, Canada and Mexico, and then of course, as I mentioned, the top fifty markets in the U.S. covered as well. And and when you take a look at just the the uh, in depth insights that are necessary to operate in some of these markets, like Toronto, for example, you know they're less they're operating at less than a half percent vacancy rate. Uh, the the vacancy rates in Mexico are uh, you know drastically different in certain parts of the country, but but very low as well. And so it really helps to have experts on the ground that know those markets, live and breathe those markets every day, and are part of our uh, overall logistics and transportation team. So so you have vacancy rates while the building right uh, new building that's new facilities that are being built both in the U.S. and Mexico, correct? Yeah, a ton a ton of new constructions happened in the industrial world in the last, like I said, probably 12, 13 years. What's really odd lately, though, is because of the volatility in interest rates and the cost of construction loans, um, much of the spec development that was going on very heavily in 2020, 2021 has really stopped as, as of uh, the back half of 22 and into 23. So we're kind of uh, coming up here on about 12 months of most spec development for warehousing in the U.S. at least and, and uh, North America on pause. And what that really is driving is those low vacancy rates. And, and you know, the, the demand is still fairly high. It's about back to pre-COVID levels, we think, with regards to leasing demand and, and uh, capacity requirements. But the, uh, the fact that there was a six to nine month pause at the beginning of COVID, and now we've had a 12-month pause. You know, if you look at the last 40 months of, of um, calendar time, we've had, you know, a significant amount, 18 to 20 months of that have really uh, had very slow to no spec development underway. So it's it's putting a lot of pressure on the existing industrial capacity that's out there. And therefore, you know, you've seen rental rates just skyrocket over the last three years. And, uh, for those tenants that are coming back into the market uh, to renew their leases and haven't been in the market for five years, they're getting an incredible sticker shock, especially in Seattle, Inland Empire, Toronto, uh, New Jersey, Savannah, markets like that. Ah, okay. Lots of lots of different considerations. So one, one last question um, to close, Todd. Um, how do you think the infrastructure bill will affect the the markets. I mean, there's a lot of money being put into d- redeveloping roads and bridges. And will that drive uh, location decisions, do you think? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I see so much infrastructure. Uh, in fact, uh, there's a guy, Peter Zion, if, if you haven't checked his stuff out, uh, he's a geopoliticist. And uh, he was, he was kind of summing up the industrial uh, infrastructure investment that's being made. 
and said that right now we're we're going through a the largest reindustrialization of the country, uh, even even faster growth in industrial and infrastructure investment than during World War II. And you know, you, you take a look at the infrastructure uh, plan, the the Build Back Better plan, and some of the other policies. Uh, you know, they're creating huge incentives for green energy to be built inside the U.S. with U.S. materials. Um, and that EV infrastructure is is one of those things. You know, green energy elements that that are being built out in such a a big way. And and the way it's going to really play out is, you know, if you think about it, part of that infrastructure is to is to provide high-speed uh, internet access in rural areas of the country. And it's going to allow the populations that have really migrated from the Midwest and Northeast down to the Southeast to, to spread out a little bit and, you know, outside the major metro areas. And that's going to, that's going to create, uh, you know, a little bit of friction in the industrial um, distribution network as well, because those people, you know, aren't going to be necessarily all centered in the metro major metro areas. So it's going to have to require, I think, more last mile delivery capacity out into the rural areas. And I think it's also going to, you know, it's it's going to be something we got to keep an eye on with regards to where people are locating around uh, the coasts, right? I mean, there's been so much disruption with regards to, uh, you know, weather events and things like that. And uh, it's, you know, pe- people are eventually got to grow tired of that or not be able to afford to live, I think, traditionally where they, where they have lived in some of the coastal areas. So we're going to we're going to see the infrastructure um, bills and, and plans, I think, need to address that as well, kind of the, the shift of the population within the U.S. Uh, but, but you know, if you look at the infrastructure investments, we're looking at $7.5 billion uh, granted for EV charging stations. That should get us about another 500,000 EV charging yeah. stations, which is probably yeah. about half the way there where we need to get to. Yeah, that's really important for both uh, the trekking industry as well as uh, all of us consumers are likely going to be driving uh, electric vehicles here in the future. Well, Todd, oh, it was delightful. It was delightful talking to you today, and so interesting. Uh, how do people reach you if they have uh, some work they want you to do or are interested in talking further with you? Um, yeah, Rosemary, thank you very much for the time as well today. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, my email is todd.stefan at colliers.com. That's probably the best way to, to reach me. Obviously, LinkedIn is always available and, and chatting on there and posting all the time. And then, uh, you know, my cell phone is, is, uh, is a pretty popular way to get hold of me. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much again. Really appreciate it. Great episode. I think very thoughtful and, uh, hopefully we'll move forward with rebuilding America through reshoring. Have a great day. You got it, Rosemary. Thanks so much. 